Welcome to another free first hour episode of the Higher Side Chats. I know we want to get into the action, but I have to ask that you help me armor us up a bit for the bumpy road ahead. Because I bring you the first hour of this show without unrelated ad nonsense as a proof of concept. And if you value it, then come over to THC Plus for the $8 a month and hear the full two-hour interviews as they were designed to be and as you would enjoy them most. Go to thehiresidechats.com or just click the link in the show notes to get started and within a minute you'll be plugging in your new Plus Show RSS feed into a hopefully decentralized podcasting 2.0 supported app. Feed the things you want to grow and starve the things that gotta go and we will reach the promised land. Think about that and enjoy the show. President Franklin Delano Roosevelt addressed the nation through a series of radio broadcasts known as the Fireside Chats. His aim was to reassure the common man that our society would recover from its troubled times. Well, we're far from 1930, and I deal with a different kind of fire. For a new era of worldly frustration, we offer a fresh conversation. I'm Greg Carlwood, and these are the Higher Side Chats. How's it going, Higher Side Chatters from sunny San Diego? I'm Greg Carlwood, and despite the best efforts of the capstone cabal, I hope you're hanging in there. But isn't it interesting that regardless of what era you're in, that seems to be the best we can do. Hang in there, while the parasitic puppet masters of the power pyramid experience an opulence we can hardly conceive of. From Babylonian banking priesthoods to the wackos of the World Economic Forum, this structure and cultural management system seems to be as ancient as anything, and the most dependable constant in human history. The many keep breaking their backs to prop up the few in a trickle-up-everything ultimate enslavement system that's certainly no accident. Sometimes brutally overt and sometimes hidden behind the thin veneer of freedom and fractional reserve banking, but it's all designed to slowly suck the resources, income, and energy of the masses into the oily appendages of the nefarious few. And this more-for-me management philosophy doesn't necessarily need a deeper-rooted origin story other than it works and the incentives are pretty self-evident, but what if it does actually spiral out of a fractured subconscious memory of a true golden age? A radical reconfiguration of our cosmic terrarium and a rich Saturnian symbolism coursing through the culture created by those who have the power to do so. Well, that is the outlook of today's returning guest, Troy McLaughlin, best known for his book, The Saturn Death Cult, which connects the cosmic history of the Electric Universe model to the real-world control structure we can't seem to escape. Since we last spoke way back in 2014, Troy has released an updated and expanded version of The Saturn Death Cult, as well as a prequel of sorts called The Purple Dawn of Creation, A Journey into a Time Before Time Began, and a speculative work on Donald Trump's prophetic connections to an obscure Israeli king called Donald Trump, an American Jehu. Given the context of our times, it is a real pleasure to speak with him again, the Saturn Death Cult Dot Connector, Electric Universe Expander, and Sixth Slavery System Sense Maker, Troy, my man, welcome back to the higher side. Hey, Greg, it's a real pleasure to be with you again. (laughs) Yes, I am very excited about this one. I think seven years is a record long gap for a return guest around here. That first show definitely left an impact on me. And in that interview, you cited an elite plan to manifest a false golden age through technology. 
a desire of theirs to call the herd, and an expectation that as the screws tighten on the people, things would start to get away from them, as it did with empires of the past. And I guess I would ask, how do you think those predictions stack up to the things we've actually been going through in the COVID era? Seems like a hit to me. Yeah, very much so. I've got to say optimistically that it's not going well for them, which you know pleases me that even though we've called some of the aspects that we're seeing today, particularly what is an overt, obvious attempt to cull the herd, so to speak, to bring the world population down to that number that's been trotted out because of the Georgia Guidestones, that 500 million human population number. You know, as a result of their attempts at trying to do that, it seems that they've overplayed their hand and things are not going very well for them. They didn't get the war they wanted. People are not responding to the current COVID sort of situation the way they probably wanted. And it's very heartening to see, but we're in for very rough times. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And as we talked about last time, everything from the major religions to the major financial structures to the graduation cap, it all relates to the symbolism of the sun, either the first sun, Saturn, or the new sun that has emerged in our current system. But given how many things tend to relate to whatever our life giver star is, it's interesting that we call this the coronavirus, the biggest operation of my lifetime, and it's pegged right there to the same symbols that it's rooted in. They can't help themselves, can they? <laughs> once you have the key to this, once you understand, and particularly the book that I've written tries to sort of make that point that what was often referred to as sun worship, as in the sun that we see rising and setting today, in ancient times was very much focused on a very different sun. And it's that sun that is the basis of what you would call Saturn worship because of the uh, connection to the actual planet Saturn having once been a sun in its own right in ancient times. The symbolism, they can't escape it. And here we are today with, you know, just yet another addition to this plethora of uh, symbols that people can open their minds to and understand once they get the key as to what was happening in the mythological ancient past. Absolutely. Well said. And today, things are certainly off the rails. Now they just want everyone bowing down at the altar of COVID. But you were probably the first guest to really break down the electric universe model, Velikovsky and the Saturnian sun hypothesis. And now we've had many guests talk about it since, but I still consider you the best because David Talbot can break down the mythology while Thornhill will break down the science, but you relate this cosmic cataclysm to the frame of mind of the elite, the exploitation structure we can't seem to escape, and the Saturnian symbolism obsession that we see seeded all throughout culture, award show rituals, and many other traditions that we have. Let's start there just to get everyone on the same page, but remind people how these things are connected. Yeah, well, uh, you know, I've got to say that a shout out to Jay Widener. He was the guy through his work on uh, Stanley Kubrick and 
Stanley Kubrick's brushes with an elite pedophile group of people. It was Jay who alerted me to the connection between what is so obviously Saturn worship amongst the modern-day elites and his connection back to the ancient form of the worship, particularly when he highlighted the fact that Kubrick's seminal film, 2001, they originally wanted to use Saturn as the main planet in that film. And they had some very shallow excuse that they couldn't get the rings looking good or anything like that, so they went to Jupiter. But Jay was convinced that they were getting too close, far too close to the bone for these people to let go out in terms of uh, exposing where the elite are. So yeah, basically two golden ages. My book's objective, still even with its updated thing, is has always been to expose the rotten mythical foundation on which much of the occult and the esoteric are based, while also exposing the modern use of symbolism and the central banking system of debt-based finance as the chief control mechanism for planetary control by a select elite. The way I try to achieve this object in the book is by highlighting the existence of a traditional occult belief in two very different golden ages, one that was an ancient and beautiful mythological age, ruled over by the mythical god Saturn. And of course, when we say Saturn, his various forms and all the other mythologies that have this very similar version of that story. And this golden age was the one that came to a destructive end sometime in the mythological past. And there is a second golden age, the other being a future man-made technology-driven golden age that is planned, well, they hope, planned to be brought about sometime in the future for the benefit of a privileged elite. Of course, this is an elite that follows a distorted occult understanding of the original golden age of Saturn, which now considers themselves to somehow be the rightful inheritors and custodians of that ancient Saturnian legacy. What I do is I call upon a radical new cosmology that I feel explains the natural origins of this original mythical Saturn Golden Age. And this is a new cosmology that completely reappraises the recent history of the solar system and its formation. This makes up the first part of the book, while the second part of the book otherwise overviews the rise of this insidious worldwide occult culture. And I need to emphasize that I'm writing about a culture, not an actual group, but a culture. This culture has arisen with the aim of the establishment of a new golden age where privileged elites live off the backs of others to sustain their ideas for bringing about this new golden age. I think it's best summed up as along the lines of those in charge, this is their idea, those in charge get to eat free while planning a new and better world for themselves that the average person is not invited to take part in. And this thinking capitalizes on deeply ingrained archetypes of doomsday and the god archetype within the collective human psyche and has been exploited to control popular beliefs, political systems, all for the benefit of these elites coming down through the ages in one way or, or another. However, I argue that humanity can break free of the exploitation of these archetypes through the understanding that there is a natural explanation as to why mankind has been afflicted by these destructive archetypes. So 
knowledge of this natural explanation, this new cosmology, I believe goes a long way to helping people free themselves from being victim of exploitation via these archetypes through the use of symbols and other control mechanisms. And of course, I argue that if you want to see the ultimate manifestation of what they've been planning, COVID is very much at the very top, but the underlying factor I've always argued is the existence of a debt-based financial system, the central banking model that we all basically have to pay tribute to. Mm. Well, that's an excellent summary. And it is important, yes, to mention that this is a culture, not one specific secret society, but a cult of ideas, a culture which certainly has driven many specific secret societies and occult orders through the ideas alone, right? I mean, so it's more like we should nest those secret societies under the Saturn death cult philosophy rather than the other way around or get them confused. Yeah, absolutely. It's not about some card-carrying club of satanic cannibals, uh, you know, as as the title of my book might imply to some. I'm not joking when I say it's actually worse than that because... When I talk about the Saturn death cult, it's a term I use to describe a predatory culture that is prevalent amongst most of the world's socioeconomic and political occult elites. It's a term that refers to a hidden culture that has developed over the centuries, mostly due to this unfortunate distortion of the myth or distorted understanding of the mythological record a record of mythologies that is shared by virtually all peoples and tribes in one form or another. I would say that these multiple mythologies are, and this is key to understanding where I'm coming from with this, what these mythologies actually are, are the actual human witnessed accounts of ancient catastrophic planetary events involving the five, what are called the five naked eye planets of our solar system, and in particular the planet Saturn. And this took place during a time when Earth's skies looked radically and frighteningly different. It was a time when Earth and its inhabitants had suffered a traumatizing doomsday event that devastated the Earth and brought about the unheard at that point in time, the unheard of condition of resource scarcity. And it was this radically changed environment that led Earth survivors to embrace the concept of kingship you know, looking for leadership that reflected this ancient sort of golden age time when Saturn ruled a time of plenty. And it's due to the rise of this concept of kingship that has developed a universal claim to authority amongst elites that eventually manifested itself amongst earthly kings and leaders as the authority that they increasingly claim is based on some kind of supposed reflection of the will of the gods, the chief god amongst the gods being the supreme creator Saturn archetype on which all these claims to authority are supposedly based. So what I hope to convince readers of is that the sinister aspect behind this concept of kingship and authority and even priesthood and religion is a belief that whatever the creative force behind the universe might be, particularly that those forces behind these planetary catastrophes, this is a force that can be manipulated into favoring select groups of people at the expense of the greater population, which in their mind must be controlled completely in order to achieve 
their objectives. Now, the kind of people that embrace this cultural distortion are people who have also fully embraced the idea that power and its role in society is never a matter of exercising justice. They look on it simply as a matter of, and I put this in quotes, having influence. In their minds, therefore, influence manifests itself in the gaining and the use of power. And over the centuries, the Saturn creator god archetype has been refined as a control mechanism through the use of symbols and rituals to provide what I believe to be the single most effective enslavement mechanism ever devised, and that is this modern central banking model of international debt finance. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the rise of kingship and resource scarcity. So I don't want to spend too much time explaining the details of the cosmology and the old Saturnian sun configuration because you can get really lost in the details, and we did it before. But if we assume the Saturn-Sun system did exist, and we have had an environment of perpetual twilight without seasons, and abundance was easy to attain, contrast that old configuration with the new one we have now, and how that would affect the human dynamics and culture, because that is important context for the... Saturn death cult mindset to be properly understood, right? Yeah, yeah. No, it's crucial. It's actually at at the center of everything that I would call Saturn death cult. This idea that the Earth was a paradise for a period of time, and then that radically and disastrously changed when effectively the solar system reconfigured into the one that we see today. But prior to that, had been very, very different. And the result of that change took human experience from one of where they did not have to worry when it comes to feeding themselves. There was perpetual harvests on the earth. The earth gave of its bounty without any major work from humans. And the resulting change that took place, and we can go to clarify for people why that change took place, what the cosmological circumstances were that changed from that time of paradise into a new world, which was a time of scarcity. In other words, the earth started to experience seasons. This resulted very much in people having to scrounge around for food in what would be called the winter season that they'd never experienced before. And as a result of scarcity, people had to organize and attempt to combat scarcity through economy. And when that changed, it was the control of economies and the resources that economies were trying to exploit that provided the fertile ground for the rise of a exploitive system of control in which elites would seek to uh, have other people do the work necessary to give them a life that they considered to be similar to what had been lost when the Golden Age came to its catastrophic end. And I've always pointed to the mythological aspects of the Bible as a very good king point for people. It's not a religious point that I'm making or anything. It's just quite simply this, that according to this particular tradition, when the earth suffered this cataclysm, humankind 
went into a situation where it was by the sweat of their brow they would now make the earth yield its fruits. And the way I like to explain that is that there is obviously a group of people who have no intention to sweat when it comes to making the earth yield its fruits and would rather create a system that forces other people to do the sweat for them while they go about you know, living the life to which they feel they're entitled. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes, man. And in the seven years since we last talked, I've spoken with a lot of guests who lay out the more occult or esoteric perspective on reality, where consciousness is primary rather than matter. These kinds of ideas, coupled with a lot of the things that jive with the views of indigenous cultures that the Catholic Church tried to stomp out, and the more animist perspective that consciousness permeates from all things, from grass and rocks to planets and stars. And all this is just to say that these are the ideas swirling around in my worldview these days, and it makes me wonder about the consciousness of Saturn or the consciousness of the sun and how these qualities, almost in an astrological way, might be reflected in the environment, or that all the things that spill out of these different configurations might have a root in the consciousness of these bodies and the results that we see might just be how they're expressed. <laughs> kind of a weird one, but what do you think? Yeah, I'm very partial to the writings of Rupert Sheldrake and his concepts of what are called morphic fields and the idea that nature gets better the more it does something. It caters for the idea that distortions can take place within these morphic fields that exist. I think one of the things that's most interesting is that when people describe the way the brain's electrical components, you know, the electrical impulses that we see in the brain, it looks very, very similar to what we see in the greater universe. It's almost as if the universe is a how would you say, sort of a giant version of what a human brain has, mm -hmm. you know, within itself. There are a lot of, you know, strong similarities there. And this is where the electric universe, electricity itself as a power source, is showing us a new way of looking at the universe where electricity and not gravity defines the physics. And because electricity is very much a part of our thought processes in our own brains, but also part of the way that the electric universe model says physics works in the greater universe, there has to be some kind of connection there. I would also throw in the role of water. I'm adherent to the thinking of Victor Schalberger. Yeah. As far as Schalberger and so on was concerned, water becomes that physical connection into the electricity of life, the evanescence of life that is absolutely essential throughout the universe. And it's very interesting because water is the weirdest substance in the universe on this one point. It is the only substance known to science that expands when both cooled and heated. Now that's odd. Everything, when it cools, it contracts. And when it heats, it expands. But water is the opposite. Once it reaches it's a, what's called its anomaly point, which is about four degrees Celsius, when it reaches that anomaly point, if it gets cooler, it'll start to expand and become ice. And if it gets hotter, it starts to expand and ultimately becomes vapor or steam. And the electrical properties of water and 
the crystalline nature of it and its role in our own bodies. And that very much reflects what we see about us on the earth at a planetary level. And then that is transferred very much into how water behaves in space, whether it's with brown dwarf stars, which are copious water carriers, ice moons, all these sorts of things that have water about them and the roles that electricity plays in forming their you know, various configurations and manifestations in terms of the physics. I think there is a deep spiritual level under this that we're only really starting to discover. Yes, I agree. That is another rail on the things we've explored over the years, that there might be a secret science of electricity, plasma, water, and spiraling vortexes. And you take these all these things together and there's a whole branch of science that just seems to be suppressed. We've talked to Dr. Gerald Pollack about his work and his book, Fantastic. The Fourth Phase of Water. Mm. Oh, I'm glad you're familiar. H2O3 or the plasma phase of water mm -hmm. and the implications for health, for technology. I mean, they're pretty staggering. We might have just given out the rough blueprints of how to build a UFO, you know, an anti-gravitic <laughs> craft, because it seems to be plasma and spiral vortexes and electricity seems to be the primary force that gravity comes from. So if you alter the charge, you just alter the the magnetism of gravity. You know, it's like the earth has a negative charge. So create a spinning metal saucer with a negative charge, and then you seem to be able to counter gravity. Yeah. Well, as <laughs> you know, Wal Thornhill often points out, you know, that gravity really is an electrostatic phenomenon. One of the most incredible things that has come out of what's called Saturn theory, this idea of Earth having been a, a satellite of Saturn once and then Saturn captured by the sun and Earth being separated and so on. One of the great mysteries that has come down through the age of these periodic die-off events, these extinction events, and a co-author of mine, Ted Holden, he sort of came up with an insight when he pointed out the impossibility of dinosaurs in the current gravity environment. And of course, this is anathema to mainstream science that says gravity is a constant, like they claim the speed of light is a constant. So they will tell you that dinosaurs walked around on a planet that had you know, almost exactly the same gravity that we have now. But the electric universe gives scope to the fact that the idea of giant land-based creatures getting smaller through extinction events over time is because we've had periodic adjustments to our gravity where our gravity has got heavier and heavier and heavier. So that, according to Ted Holden, Earth's gravity may have one time under Saturn, because of its electrical relationship to Saturn, it may have one time have had a third of the gravity that we experience today. And as each electrical shock or event takes place and changes that electrical relationship, that dynamic, we see changes to gravity and it seems to have been in the range of getting heavier and heavier. And we now live you know, in a time on the earth where land creatures, the largest you can get are elephants, they're about the full extent before something starts to collapse on itself. We still have the biggest creature that's ever existed on the planet. It's a blue whale, but it's held up in the buoyancy of the oceans. But you put a blue whale beached and it will start to collapse under its own weight. It'll eventually suffocate. 
this seems to have been a factor that is well described by the Electric Universe. And I, I recently did an interview where somebody made a point that I thought was very good, where this idea of longevity that we find in many of the mythologies where humans live to extraordinary ages and so on. And then at a certain point in time, it seems that if you take the biblical record, it talks about the age of humanity being restricted to 120 Earth years, whereas before you had people living 700, 900 years. And the point made was that this may have been a result of the planetary reconfiguration taking place at particularly the time of Moses and before may have led to a gravity change that you know is tough on the human physical being and that gravity pull is probably one of the big contributors as to why we can't live past you know a few people have been 123 I've heard or something like that nobody gets to 130 and we have this limitation on us and it may be due to yet another gravity change and it seems that we may be going through another gravity change. The French are shocked at the moment because their kilogram, I think it's a piece of platinum that they have in a controlled environment that is the final measure of what a kilogram should weigh. To their shock, has got three to six electrons heavier, um, wow. and they can't understand why because nothing has got into that controlled environment to rest on it or to push down on it or anything like that. So maybe that kilo, if you take the electric universe concept and what seems to be a change going on in our electric relationship to the sun itself, hence the global warming stuff that we're seeing as opposed to carbon emissions, but that change may actually be subtly changing our current level of gravity. Yeah, that's really interesting. I've listened to a couple of biohackers talk about longevity and how it relates to the telomeres in our DNA mm -hmm. and that telomeres can be affected by the amount of carbon or hydrogen that they interact with. And that's going to be dictated by our overall environment for mm -hmm. sure. And it even makes me think about carbon-14 dating because that whole discipline assumes that the carbon is constant. Yes. And yes. at time depths of millions of years, it probably isn't. These cataclysms and environmental changes would throw a giant wrench in any kind of timeline that you tried to create using carbon. Yeah. Carbon dating might work in the scales of a couple of thousand years or you know, at the most 3,000 years or something. But just the simple cosmic radiation that rains down on this earth is enough to put into doubt the carbon clock that a lot of people rely on for dating and so on like that. It's a little bit like every now and then science finds something that they believe just essentially explains everything and is solid and is a constant that will always be there, like ice core dating, carbon dating, in criminology, fingerprints, and even DNA. And you know, later on, we find that we're only scratching the surface. But yeah, carbon dating has loads of problems in being an accurate measure of time. Absolutely. And the carbon clock. I definitely like that. That's a nice one. And we should take a little time to tell people what you've added to the new revised and expanded edition of the book. Probably the most exciting new material to me is the connection to the work of Peter Mark Adams being included. 
Peter is a previous guest of mine. Listeners might remember his book, Game of Saturn, which covers the Sola Bushka tarot deck. As you write, Peter Mark Adams has uncovered documented evidence of a Saturn cult existing within the near-modern elites of the Italian Renaissance. His book, Game of Saturn, is a marvel of esoteric scholarship and provides us with the evidence of an unbroken link between ancient occult Saturn worship and the modern world elites. I learned a tremendous amount from Adams's book and have included much of this in the new edition. While I'm with you, I loved that book and Peter's work. What would you say about his discoveries and how well it fits into your work? Well, you know, when I first wrote Saturn Death Cult, making that connection between what's going on in the world today and the obvious evidence we have for some of the more horrific aspects of Saturn worship, which is human sacrifice, child sacrifice, even child cannibalism, these sorts of grotesque ideas, there is a disconnect with the full horror of that in terms of the modern world because a lot of us cannot comprehend that there would be people, particularly in what we would call our elites, that there might be that kind of behavior going on. We can accept that the Carthaginians and the Canaanites and even the Romans and certain Roman emperors were capable of this kind of abhorrent behavior when it came to killing children. Who could possibly conceive of that kind of thing going on in a modern age, particularly in the last 20, 30 years when we've got people walking around with cameras on their phones that are better than the cameras I was using when I worked in television in the uh, 1980s? Something would leak out, something would come to the fore. So as I said earlier, it was the work of Jay Widener who first alerted to me that there was a connection between the ancient history of Saturn worship and that Saturn worship had somehow survived, particularly its pedophilic you know, sort of tendencies in terms of its rituals and, and its use of children. It somehow survived through to the modern age, but there was still that gulf between ancient Rome and what's going on in the 20th century going into the 21st century. How do you fill up the rest of the space in terms of documented evidence that there is this unbroken link of Saturn worship down through the ages? And Peter Mark Adams' book is, that is the link. That was a documented evidence that even though he has never made the statement that they actually engaged in what, you know, this Solar Buscatero deck depicts and so on, that they may have sacrificed babies or anything along those lines. There's no evidence of them actually having done that. But the importance is that they were aware of a type of worship that was so radically different to Christian concepts of Satanism that most people associate with the more, you know, what you call unseemly behavior of non-Christian pagan outfits. What I found most interesting with Peter Mark Adams' work is that what he explained to me was why these people engage, why they're willing to accept that there is a creative being who would actually promote in his worship some form of human sacrifice, particularly the sacrifice of children. And this explanation, because, you know, again, it's almost beyond belief for most of normal people to believe that there are people out there who think that sacrificing a child, debauching a child on an altar, 
would be some sort of benefit to them. It's impossible for most of us to comprehend what kind of mindset would actually go down that path. In his book, Game Saturn, he told us that the fundamental difference between Saturn worship or the worship of Baal Haman, which is the version of Saturn that is represented in the Solabuska Tarot, that the difference between that God and the Christian God or even the Christian concept of Satan is that we in Christianity have what's called a judgment day. And the judgment day belies the idea that we have a righteous God who ultimately calls us to account and brings the world back into equilibrium so that everything is set right. We refer to that as heaven or whatever people's interpretation of that is, but it's based on the idea of a righteous God who brings about judgment. In Saturn worship, there is no such thing as a judgment day. There is only doomsday by a capricious God who may, just on a whim, decide to wipe out his creation and start again, or whatever it is that that he would do. The key to it is understanding that this God is something that really doesn't have too much of an interest in the affairs of his creation and is quite perfectly capable of turning on it as much as just leaving it to go alone. The difference being here is that where is the righteous God concept? We are expected in some way to present our lives as having lived according to certain rules and proved ourselves to be worthy of the righteous God's way of doing things. In the Saturn capricious God model, it is up to us to try and influence the Saturnian God into benefiting us at a time when he may decide to eradicate everybody else. This was something that was profound in the game of Saturn in in coming to that understanding that if you believe in a capricious supreme creative being, and such, then you can also believe that you might, through the use of magic, through the use of ritual, through the use of manipulation, and so on, you might be able to influence. This is what I said earlier that it's all about having influence, it's not about seeking justice for these people. And in so doing, you can influence through ritual, through symbolism, you can influence this capricious God into benefiting you while everybody else gets wiped out. And over time, that concept has led to, you know, an absolute abomination of rituals and behaviors related to the pain of children, women, human sacrifice, cannibalism acts. And I always wondered why would somebody, what do they think they can actually influence this God in doing? And one of the things that comes out of Game of Saturn is that there's that idea that life is actually a wheel that you are reincarnated. In the biblical concept of life, it is you live, you die, and then you're resurrected into perfection. Or in some cases, you resurrected into heaven or whatever it is that you go to. So you get that second life. In the Saturn or Baal Haman type worship, you are constantly being reborn into the world as you die. And if you perform the correct ritual, you can influence which families you get born into. And as a result of this, 
it becomes important to some people that they are born into better families and they think that they can manipulate this idea through ritual to ensure that they are born into one of the elite families or they remain within an elite family as time sort of marches on. That was probably one of the most profound insights to understanding the psychology of what we're facing in terms of some of these occult elites that basically want to launch this new golden age under their control. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it explains a lot of the arranged marriages and the emphasis on carefully selected interbreeding and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. And, And I'm also curious to the degree that people that engage with this dark pedophilia, blood sacrifice stuff actually understand the context that started it. But you do a great job of explaining this context of why the elite do what they do, why they started these rituals and this culture of sacrifice, why the symbolism. You tend to explain the mindset that drives it all, but I don't get much of a sense of your thoughts on if this ritual and sacrifice actually works or if that's just their flawed desperate logic. What do you think? Would you equate these magical mechanisms and traditions to something closer to an energetic science or a superstition? I'm more on the line of a superstition. For me, the idea that they believe it works is the most dangerous thing in the world. It's their belief that it works that I find abhorrent. I don't see evidence that it has ever worked for them. Some people may claim it. I've never met anybody on a personal level that has claimed that they've come back via these methods or of a ritual and so on. But the thing is, is that irrespective of what they're trying to achieve on a cosmic level, a spiritual level, what it certainly does for them is it provides and has provided the elites and people of certain families immense power in the world. And that's why for me, It's very fine concentrating on the very lurid concepts of human sacrifice, of these sorts of behaviors that the elites have. But for me, the thing that works best for them is the control of money, the issuance of money. Once they have that, they have true power. And in that sense, I've always argued, not so much in Satin Death Cult, but I've looked at the works of Joseph P. Farrell with his series on the Babylon's banksters and the vipers of Venice and so on like that. These great books that look at finance as a form of alchemy. And it is this interest-based financial system, this form of alchemy, that is the true power behind elite control of whichever civilization they get their hands on. Now, that's not to say that we've had vast periods of time where the key aspect of control has simply been the ritualistic aspect. I would say that Mesoamerica suffered terribly under variations of the Saturn cult concept of ritualistic manipulation, right up to the time of the conquistadors and even later. And you can see that you know there are certain other cultures in the South Pacific that have been burdened with these ideas. We see a resurgence of it in Africa at the moment, You know, they're all derived from exactly the same mentality that we were talking about with the game of Saturn, with this worship of Baal Haman. It's the same concept of trying to manipulate a god into favoring you as such. And they genuinely believe it. 
But that belief has two fatal flaws, in my opinion. One is what it's actually based on, which is the mythologies, their interpretation of mythology as literally psychodramas of previous beings, where Saturn becomes a being as opposed to a force or a creative power. The other flaw that they have, of course, is the financing of it. If they lose control over the financing and the ability to pay for this way of thinking, because that's what it boils down to, the ability to pay people to look the other way, to pay people to provide victims, the ability to create blackmailable material that gives them control over the financing of countries, industries, and technology, and so on. If they ever lose that, then all of the supposed power that they derive from these rituals just vanishes. They've lost it. And if we can understand that getting rid of the central banking system and such would almost cleanse the world of Saturn-type worship concepts almost immediately, because without the central banking model, we wouldn't have a situation where we're all scrapping over what are considered to be scarce resources and We wouldn't have a situation where somebody always loses, no matter how hard they work. This is the nature of the beast that is the world financial system, the central banking model. And I believe that when that gets taken out of the equation, there just isn't anything there to drive a lot of this need to influence, to be born into better families, to be born higher, because... An equitable monetary system simply means those who work hard do well and those who don't, don't get the rewards. That would be a more natural state of existence, I think, for the vast majority of humanity than the current one that we're all involved in, which is, in my opinion, responsible for most of the wars and problems, social problems that we have today. Well, that's a great breakdown. And it seems like there's this paranoia they have over scarcity based on the knowledge of this previous cycle, and it's turned into a pathology, and they're incredibly bloodthirsty to keep facilitating this superstition, as you say, and I really don't know. I tend to put more emphasis on the elite's belief systems being true just because they seem to be so effective at staying in control. You see the layout of something like Washington, D.C., and you listen to someone talk about geomancy, and then you see what Washington, D.C. has turned into and the American empire has turned into, and it's like, man, maybe there is something to this. But magic, of course, is a giant umbrella, and not all magic is created equal, just like not all languages or math is is equally viable or complex or accurate. But we have found out that you can focus your consciousness and have out-of-body experiences or astral travel or remote viewing. You can draw a pentagram on the ground and recite the right incantation and contact something based on the reports that I've heard from many, many people Manifestation and intention, they have been tested in the lab with people like Lynn McTaggart or Dr. Dean Radin, and they actually have effects. If you pray over one set of seeds and don't over another set, there is a measurable effect in the abundance and the way they grow. And of course, things like MKUltra on the dark side revealed 
a strange link between trauma and paranormal sensitivity, we might call it. But how many people who have actually seen a UFO or had an abduction experience, they actually have childhood traumas that most of us wouldn't have. And there seems to be a relationship there as well. So I don't know if the elite's brand of magic and ritual actually works. I'm, uh, I hope it doesn't, but I unfortunately think it might because of their position. But some forms of magic and some altered states of consciousness do seem to summon up something else. So this idea that there's, um, you know, other forces in the world that can be communicated with and can be bargained with. I mean, that seems pretty real. So I don't know if it scales up to what they're doing, but there's something in that mix, don't you think? I do subscribe to the idea that there's something we haven't fully grasped in the carnal sense, to use a Christian term, in the physical sense. I guess the point that I'm making is that inevitably, whatever it is that they are indulging in seems to ultimately be geared towards giving them advantage in the economic sense, in the sense of being in a position to exploit other people's productivity for their own benefit, as opposed to using it to benefit others. There always seems to be a very selfish element to the idea, you know, put me in a position where I can exercise authority or I can have access to these resources or something along those lines. And when the world's resources and and particularly the resource that we call money or the, the measure of work that we call money is controlled by certain people for the benefit of a few through the dark alchemy of usury, going to apply sort of spiritual aspects there, it seems to me that they always seem to want to, they never seem to want to fight this for a better world. They seem to want to get in on it. Um, at the expense of other people. They want to be the guys who are in the inner circle as opposed to the great masses who are on the outside. And that's where I take exception to where their magic is in much in the way that it is a distorted understanding as to what mythology was actually about in terms of planetary catastrophes. I look at their use of magic as a distorted understanding of what it should be used for. That's where the dangerous aspect is. They desperately want to be in on it in terms of the privileges that these elites seem to have given themselves by the control over the measure we call money. Very well said. I totally agree that these baked-in mechanisms of consciousness in this sandbox reality, they seem to be tilted towards the light, you know, power of eight, intention, manifestation. It seems like if you wake up to this reality, you can actually change your own life for the better. But we are told from the ground up that you are nothing but a random expression of a meaningless universe Millions of people have lived and died. You're no different. Poor little you. You might as well just be a cog in the machine because that's the best you're ever going to get. But when you see yourself as a fractal of the creator God or the universe itself, and this is an experience you came to that. manifest. Yeah. yeah. I mean, those those philosophies, they seem to be way more empowering and actually have real results. And if you live your life by those principles, things do blossom out of it for sure 
Certainly. I would just argue that when it comes to a lot of these elites and so on, it's always at the expense of other people. Yes. And so on. You know, wouldn't it be nice to be reborn as a pharaoh rather than the slave that is dragging the blocks up to make the pyramid or something like that? And again, they can't help themselves. That's what they aspire to. And it's a funny thing because they're using something that, you know, we can agree is very spiritual in nature has a higher position or should have a higher position in our consciousness. And yet what they're trying to manipulate is themselves into positions of carnal gain, of materialistic gain. Mm -hmm. It's just one of those things that they always seem to be angling towards that. I want to be with the guys who have the Rolls Royce, (laughs) you know? Yes. And going back to Peter Mark Adams' work, When I talked to him, he seemed to be pretty explicit that the elite are celebrating in this tarot deck a real partnership with a demiurge or demonic higher being. So if they, whether it's superstition or not, they think they have this partnership with this darkness. It's like, well, these things just feed each other. It's reciprocal. So whether there's an entity on the other side of the line or not, they definitely keep calling one up. And it seems to keep them at the top. So I'm inclined to think that there is some demiurgic energy that is exploitive and quite negative, And we need to get them to dial up a different number, I guess. There are two ways of looking at this, you know, especially as two guys who are a part of what would be called the Christian West in terms of our cultural background. Mm-hmm. And that is that there is the idea, the original Melchizedekian Judaic idea that when God created the earth and such, he declared that it is good. The Greek idea rebuffs that in that the material reality that we live in is actually flawed and we have to somehow raise ourselves above the material reality of the world that we're in. And in Trying to do that, we have to align ourselves with the creator of reality in the sense that you are no longer part of that which is corrupted. In the Judaic sort of idea, the physical creation is good. It becomes corrupted, but a plan is put in place to redeem it back into a state of goodness. These are the two competing ideas. One goes down the road of Manichaeus thinking of good versus evil, which is very much the Greek model that there is a good and there is an evil and they're equal and they're battling it over. And you, you basically you choose your sides and either side could win in the long term. The Christian biblical concept is that it's really a journey of coming into agreement with the God of creation that you know provides a fail-safe where everything is righted at the end and everything comes into agreement with the creator and uh, we no longer have to suffer depredations and all the various other problems. But the Greek concept, as it is, may have been given a period of time in which to exert itself over the span of history. For people who follow a sort of a Christian, not a Gnostic Christian idea, but an older Christian idea, That basically corresponds to the establishment of the Statue of Gold at Babylon or even further back into the Tower of Babel. And ultimately, it has a termination date where a righteous God exerts 
his influence over creation and brings it back into alignment. The other way of looking at it is that, which is the um, demurge sort of way, is that ultimately there's going to be another doomsday event and we need to align ourselves in such a way through ritual and magic to make sure that we come out the other end better off than the rest of the planet. Mm-hmm. Cheers to that. And man, it really has been a pleasure talking to you today. I can't take up uh, your whole day. I know it's a marathon session already around here, but I wanted to at least close out by giving people a little bit about your other books. You have this prequel, The Purple Dawn of Creation. It's very interesting, but you call it a speculative journey and, quote, an exploration into how Earth might have looked to a race of desperate alien space travelers looking for a new home 40,000 years ago. And you talk about the Ganymedians from the ancient moon of Jupiter, Ganymede. Why this vantage point? I'm curious. <laughs> I co-authored a book called Cosmos and Collision with a guy called Ted Holden. And Ted Holden had originally looked at the whole Saturn theory idea and came to the conclusion that humans could not be of Earth because in a primordial situation where you have this purple darkness before Saturn blew up and you know flared up and created the let there be light moment, humans were uniquely ill-designed for that kind of existence, that permanent twilight sort of world that was described. We just simply compared to other animals, we were at such an incredible disadvantage compared to that. So Ted had this idea that maybe humans did not initially rise from Earth, but came from another place. That had to be a sort of a bright world, because that's our major sense. We tend to need lots of light, and, and we tend to use our eyes more than our other senses, and so on like that. So it was an interesting criticism of the Saturn theory that I took up. And as part of that, we came up with this idea that if Saturn, Earth, Mars, and Venus were not in the solar system as recently as 30,000 years ago, then what planets were in the solar system and what kind of worlds would they be? And we basically came to the idea that Jupiter could have itself been a brown dwarf star that was in a binary relationship with the sun and that Jupiter's moons, Ganymede, Callisto, and so on, were themselves water worlds their ice now because of the position that Jupiter has taken in the solar system. But Jupiter could have, well, we argue that was much closer to the sun. And so these moons could have been water worlds, which make them, and my term is they become spectacularly conducive to life as we know it. I personally have never argued that Ganymede is the cradle of human civilization. Ted goes boots in and all and says we all come from Ganymede. That's not my status. I just argue that Ganymede may have once been a place where life could have existed, life as we know it. And if it had done, I decided to do a book which hopefully explained the way the Saturn system and Earth was before the capture, the full capture by the sun. If you saw it from the perspective of a human-like race looking at this approaching a spacefaring human-like race, looking at this approaching nebula that is the Saturn system and realizing that there's going to be you know, hell to pay if that thing collides, its electrical field collides with the sun's electrical field. 
And so they embark upon this idea of a survival plan, which included populating the satellites of this approaching nebula, one of these satellites being Earth. And so it's just a speculative look that if some people had done that and they had the ability to send space probes down to have a look at this approaching nebula, what they would have discovered on Earth. And it just helps illustrate the Purple Dawn epoch, this nocturnal time period that Earth existed in before Saturn Novid and became that sun in the celestial north and the golden age and ultimately doomsday and into the last 6,000 years that we have now experienced. Hmm. Provocative, provocative, good thought exercise for sure. Yeah, I'd say speculative just to get people thinking, you know, in terms of it really was a way of trying to illustrate what life on Earth under the Purple Dawn would, would have been like if such a people existed and came and had a look. Absolutely. Something I like to think about quite often. And as for your other release, Donald Trump and American Jehu, I don't care too much for the man, but I'm always intrigued by archetypal matches for biblical history and seeing reality rhyme throughout the ages. And the description for this book says, is there a prophetic connection between the unlikely rise of Donald Trump to the presidency of the United States and a bloody rebellion waged by an obscure ancient Israelite king that destroyed a corrupt political dynasty? Students of biblical prophecy have long been aware of the concept of the prophetical template, a means of interpreting recorded biblical events as the foreshadowing of future historical events. With the Bible full of historical detail concerning the kings of ancient Israel, could there be lessons from key moments in Israelite history that we can apply to today's often confusing political climate? <laughs> mm -hmm. And I'm sure it's a lot to get into at this point, but what's the quick version for people who might want to dig into this work a bit more? It does relate to the themes in your overall work. It's just kind of a, a more focused, specific application. Right. Well, the man is very polarizing for sure. So I expected and I got a lot of incredulous pushback from people who particularly don't care for Donald Trump in any which way or whatever. Hopefully, people who read the book will understand that this is not an endorsement, nor is it a critique of Donald Trump uh, in the sense of him being some kind of sent for, sent by God person to do a job based on his righteousness and so on. Uh, the book is just simply a look at probably one of the most flawed kings of ancient Israel and how he went about destroying a very corrupt dynasty of ancient Israelite dynasty. It's really a lesson from a Christian point of view that God does not necessarily, through biblical history, use righteous people to achieve good ends. It's that idea that the will of God is that everybody behaves himself and lives according to his laws and, and observes his morals and so on like that. But the plan of God sometimes utilizes very surprising individuals or processes in which to achieve a particular outcome. And what it really derived from is this idea that the house of Ahab in the Bible is very, very similar to the duopolity of the Republican-Democrat 
elites that have been running America now for quite a few decades, but particularly in the last 50 years, and particularly with the advent of the Bush and the Clinton dynasties. I think for many people, one of the tragedies of America is that if you really look at things, a Bush or a Clinton, up to the point when Obama became president, a Bush, well, really, even during the Obama presidency, a Bush or a Clinton had held sway over American politics since the election of Ronald Reagan, because I believe when Reagan was shot three months into his turn, that was just a message from H.W. Bush that, you know, I'm actually the guy in charge here. And Reagan buckled down and he proceeded to toe the line in that respect. And, you know, Bush had the control and then that was passed with Clinton. And that eventually Bill Clinton took on the role of what you would call a, a template of King Ahab and his wife Hillary Clinton plays the role of Jezebel. And a look at those character types, not archetypes, but character types in the Bible is instructive, I feel, in understanding how human nature expresses itself down through the ages. In other words, if you look closely throughout history, you'll find these character types repeating, repeating, repeating in virtually all different cultures. And, you know, it's America's turn to go through an Ahab situation. And Ahab situations always end with this crazy guy who comes out from within. And this is one of the things I point out. Trump was an insider. Trump was part of all of that. But this crazy guy comes out of nowhere and proceeds to wreak havoc on what is a nice little corrupt system for those who are in on the, the inside. It was an exercise in creating a discussion around this sort of idea of prophetical templates. That's all the book is really designed to do. Let's have a look at this and let's see if we can apply stuff, if there's anything that can be learned from a Christian perspective, whether or not there are lessons that are replaying out in various forms. And so, for example, people who have accused me of being you know, very, very pro-Trump on certain levels I have always stated that Donald Trump shares exactly the same personality traits as King Jehu of the ancient Israelite era, in that he is a cruel man, in that he is a worshipper of the golden calf, which is simply means a worshipper of wealth. He puts his trust in money. He is somebody who puts his trust in horses and chariots, i.e. military power and so on. And you know, as a result of that, if he follows a template, he's falling short like King Jehu did at the time. King Jehu got rid of a corrupt system, but he was really just a mechanism uh, of fighting fire with fire. Wow, that is a great breakdown. And you're totally right. You don't have to glorify the man to look at him as a character type. And we could all be vessels and agents of change for things that we aren't aware of. So I'm totally open to it. I've spoken to you know, answered Christians who said, why would God use such a man as Donald Trump with all his flaws? My answer to that is that Moses killed a man. Elijah killed 50 men and then killed another 50 men. Samson killed, I can't remember the figure, probably about 25 to maybe 50 men because he, he lost a bet and he had to pay off his bet. So he decided he'd murder all these people and do it. Now, these are all biblical characters that were used by God to rescue Israel out of its troubles, to bring it back into a state of decency and so on. You know, I could go on. There's a lot of, I mean, King David, 
All right, a man after my own heart, says the God of the Bible. King David was a man who sent a love rival into battle in the hope he would be killed so he could take his wife. He was a man who slept with a 12-year-old on his deathbed in the hope of reviving his spirits. You know, so if you look through the Bible, you've got flawed figures. Trump's an angel in comparison (laughs) to some of these guys. Yeah. You know, so the Bible is full of this kind of almost counterintuitive stuff. For people who are interested in this, for people who want to look more deeply into a Christian understanding of the Old Testament and so on, I think these are important things for people to have a look at. And really, it's a book written for fellow Christians. I don't expect non-Christians to really take it seriously at all. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, we can't all be Jesus and the Lord works in mysterious ways. And if the elite sometimes seem to try to manifest revelations or manifest certain prophecies that are in the Bible, then it's relevant to even non-Christians, I say. Oh, there's a big fear of that, isn't there? (laughs) There is, there is. The evangelical thing, let's bring on Armageddon because then Christ has to come back. Oh, dear. Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's scary. It is. And I could really talk to you all day. There's just so many different avenues and aspects to all this work, but... As we're wrapping it up, what is next for you? You seem to take very long breaks from this work. Not a lot of updates to the website for multiple Mm. years, especially during the COVID era. So it seems like you're in and out in a kind of a curious way. But should we expect more work from you breaking down the symbolism and structures of the elite cabal or what? Yeah, I, I resist writing for the sake of putting out another book that just simply regurgitates material I've already covered particularly on these topics. So I do actually write under other names in terms of fictional projects and things like that. But as far as this, this is a labor of love that I want to get right. I live in perpetual fear of the day that somebody says, well, you know, that theory that you've got about Saturn, here's the reason why it's all wrong. And, you know, and I have to go, oh my goodness, (laughs) you're right. So I prefer to be careful in terms of my approach to this. Um, always happy to do interviews about it. But you know, when new information comes its way, and the new edition was triggered by the work of Peter Mark Adams, Game of Saturn, I felt it had to be updated with that information. It was too good to not do that. Yeah. But as I'm going along, because of what's going on with COVID, I think possibly I'll, I'll see how things sort of manifest themselves. But the idea that you've got a pharmaceutical dictatorship, which is a manifestation of Sodom and Gomorrah in the modern age, you know, might be an area that I could be producing something in, in the next six months or so. Yes. I would love to talk to you again if that does come to fruition. I'll let you know. Yeah. Yes, please do. This has been just really awesome dense, full of important information. You draw a nice through line through a lot of my favorite subject areas. Just a real pleasure. Again, SaturnDeathCult.com is the website. The book by the same name is a real masterpiece. Keep doing what you do and take care, man. Great. Thanks. And hopefully not too much waffle, but I thoroughly enjoyed it. Well, how about that? No awful worries at all. (laughs) Troy McLaughlin bringing the heat after seven long years. Covering so many threads that make me feel far better equipped today to have a high-level conversation than I was back then anyway. 
mysteries of water, ether physics, symbolism, cosmology, the electric universe, catastrophism, magic, and the game of Saturn. Really good stuff. Very thankful he was open to doing this again, and really glad that Peter Mark Adams' work made a lengthy appearance in the new edition. This is definitely a kind of sweet spot for me. Grand unified conspiracy spanning time and space. If you are attracted to a perspective like this and then don't filter the issues of today through that lens, then I think you're doing it wrong. Abuse of power from people in positions of authority looking down at the rest of us is pretty much a perpetual villain no matter where you look in the human story. It's a bit like Cloud Atlas, actually. A very dependable motif, but for some reason we get too close to something and we just forget all that, or we think it's going to be different this time, or we think eugenics is dead. So many people have told me that over this last year. It's very frustrating because it's just an assumption based on what they'd like to be true. It's not really based on anything. It makes it convenient to trust people like Bill Gates and Anthony Fauci and Pfizer, but that's all it is, is a thought convenience. But Troy's the man. Very interesting stuff here. Glad we could get outside of the box a little bit, get away from that dominant, dominant narrative. I know we're dealing with some pretty important stuff these days, but unless there's new information to report, or someone has a solutions-based angle on it all, like Pam Popper, I don't see the point in going over the same old story and outrage again and again. You turn on pretty much anything these days, and within five minutes you're going to hear vaccines and viruses. I think I'd rather be talking to people like Troy right now, and I hope you agree. If you liked the first hour in the second hour plus show, we talked about Saturn's madhouse, additional Saturnian symbolism, the Silver Age, the rise of the Blue Bloods, the gods industry, Sodom and Gomorrah and the drug trade, that's pretty interesting, and the serial killer motif, MKUltra and Dark Agendas there. Troy certainly knows his stuff, he is quite dedicated. And I hope you come over to the Plus Party if you haven't already. But I've said it all before, and that is the show. I'm feeling a lot better, but I'm still not 100%. And I've got so much life stuff to catch up on that the joint session might be a couple of days late. But that means you can still leave me a voicemail if you've got something to say. TheHigherSideChats.com slash voicemail or check the show notes for that link. I appreciate all the well wishes and the Venmo and PayPal donations for the Little Carlwood Diaper Fund. I've got the best people in podcasting listening to this show. We're going to do a San Diego meetup soon, but obviously I had to put those plans on hold a bit too. But soon, I didn't forget about that. But either way, I hope you enjoyed this episode, and I will see you next time. Check out SaturnDeathCult.com for more Troy. Let him know you like what he does, and thanks for listening. I've done my part. Your move, Saturnian secret keepers, demiurge dealmakers, and criminals of the capstone cabal. Your fucking move. Oh no, you see, the world isn't random, it's attached to puppet strings, control over. Everything
to steal ya Now don't that job seem silly Hello, can you hear me? Or should I play back recordings From some spike agency Wish we were younger and free I'll be thankful when it's all exposed The vast conspiracy There's such a difference Between us And the dead time. 